Progressive presents Adjusting to the Suburbs. I never thought about space in my cramped apartment, but in this house, all I see is empty space. The sofa and ottoman look like tiny islands in a sea of hardwood floors. I could get two ottomans in the living room, but then I'd need another sofa. I could tell people I'm into minimalism. Anyway, when you save with Progressive by bundling your home at auto, that's the easy part of adjusting to the suburbs. Progressive Casualty Insurance Company coverage provided in service by affiliates and third-party insurers. This is the Music Buzz Podcast. Music Buzz Podcast features candid discussions with and about those behind the scenes in the music business, including industry veterans representing the segments of musician, design, and live. All three Music Buzz Podcast hosts have spent their careers working with the biggest names in entertainment and have been and are still a fly on the wall. Dane Clark as the drummer for John Mellencamp's band for over 20 years and various solo projects. Hugh Syme, a world-renowned graphic artist for the biggest names in music and the corporate world. Andy Wilson, an award-winning marketing and public relations executive with over 20 years of combined multi-level entertainment industry experience in the music and sports business. Now let's buzz. Hello and welcome to the Music Buzz Podcast. I'm Andy Wilson, along with co-host Dane Clark. How you doing, Dane? Great, Andy. How are you today? Good, sir. And Hugh Sign. How's it going, Hugh? Going very well, thanks, Andy. Good. So glad to hear, guys. Today, we welcome to the Music Buzz podcast, one of the most celebrated drummers in classic rock history, Don Brewer. Don started playing drums at age 12 and experienced his first top 40 hit in 1966 with I Who Have Nothing as a member of Terry Knight and the Pack. Then in 1969, Don co-founded the major powerhouse rock band Grand Funk Railroad, whose career skyrocketed in 1973 behind the number one hit, We're an American Band, a song Don not only wrote, but sang while playing his historical drum licks. Also, his list of credits are Shine On, Walk Like a Man. He is also the lead singer of a hit recording everyone sings along to, Some Kind of Wonderful. Grand Funk went on to record 12 gold and 10 platinum albums. In in 83 and 87, Don was recruited to play on tour with Bob Seger and the Silver Bullet Band. The 1987 tour proved to be the largest grossing tour of that decade. Don also toured extensively with Seeger in 2006, 2007, 2011, and 2012 as the drummer of the Silver Bullet Band. The highlights of this outstanding musician's career cover the gamut, including bongo features on Frank Zappa's song, Let Me Take You to the Beach, numerous television appearances with Seeger and Grand Funk, David Letterman, Jay Leno, Good Morning America, you name it. So without further ado, please welcome from Grand Funk Railroad, the legendary Don Brewer. Wow, what a spiel. (laughs) Hi, guys. That was very nice. Thank you. Hey, Don. Brought back a lot of memories. (laughs) Good. Man, it's an honor to interview you today. Yeah, being an American rock drummer myself, to talk to one of the guys that actually invented my job uh, (laughs) and influenced countless drummers over the years, man, it's a great privilege. I saw you play with Bob Seeger on May 7th, 2011, and I had to look that up. I really didn't remember. So I thought it was I thought it was actually about five years ago. I don't but remember man, that one either. No. <laughs> well, I got to say so. But I remember the show really well. 
So you were 63 years old, which is two years older than I am now, then. And dude, you kicked ass. Uh, I mean, you were intimidating as hell. You never <laughs> missed a beat in 23 songs. Played, <laughs> played strong and hard. Tasteful fills. Great time. A freaking powerhouse. And Bob was great, of course. But to me, you were the star of the show. Oh, you really? God, were. Wow. So I, I just got, I mean, I was over, I was just going, I was walking out of there and go, man, I think I need to make sure I'm still good. I got to be able to do that in 10 years still, man. I'm going to, I'm not going to leave the woodshed for a while. I tell you, I, I loved, I loved playing all those tours with, uh, with Seeger and the Silver Bullet Band. I mean, uh, it, it was always kind of a, a little bit of a reach for me because I wasn't the drummer on the original recordings, you know? So when you go back right. and you, you try to, you try to, uh, mimic what what was being done but still put a little bit of yourself into it you know sure so that's what we it all was, have it to was do. great it was it was uh, it was wonderful i loved doing it i learned a lot doing it you know? well i'm sure that you did man but i just got to say it was just it was it, there wasn't anything out of place it felt fantastic the show was marvelous so kudos to you i'm really Thank glad you. i got to see you play so let's go back a little bit and let's talk about some of the classic things that i enjoyed that you played back in the in the earlier days of the grand funk railroad stuff i always thought your first few records like the the red cover record um on time you guys were kind of developing your thing it was kind of heavy riff rock like you were three-piece kind of cream and hendrix ish but not as flashy but heavier and really organized and tightly executed. That's what I always remember about Graham Funk. There wasn't any sloppy, like uh, the way Mellicamps likes to say, you turn the corners properly. Um, <laughs> and, and it's like, you know what I mean? Getting from A to B, there wasn't, oh, it's kind of messy for a second. Now, you guys figured all that stuff out. Like the, the early songs that I remember hearing when I was a kid, TNUC, I knew a buddy across the street used to play, and it sounded like kind of like Cream on Speed or something. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, it was very cool. And of course, Heartbreaker was a big one. You know, it's like a jam band kind of feel, except heavy. Yeah. And then the one that really broke through for me was I'm Your Captain. It was kind of like you guys' Stairway to Heaven. You know, it's a classic American rock tune. It's almost like a suite with all the different sessions in it, you know, that going from this to that. And it was a real departure for you guys because the orchestra comes in at the end. And yep. it's like, it's over 10 minutes long, I think. And man, you're just, you know, you're driving the bus on that thing. It's like movements. It was actually almost almost like three different songs. Sure. And and connected, you know, uh, with with little things. You know, the, the the verse and the bridge of "I'm Your Captain" part. You know that that you know came came and then and then there was the whole uh, closer to home part, which you know was a whole another song. You know, all in its all in itself. You know. Right. Yeah. It was it was kind of like a movement. You know, it was very very orchestral. Yeah, it very it was, and you, I mean FM radio back in the day, which is really just kind of getting started, as I recall. I mean, I was like eleven years old or something, but um, I was still a music nut, so I was listening all the time. And I'm your captain was everywhere, mm. you know, yeah, everywhere. Did so, they play the full version of that song on the radio when they when they played it on the radio? They did back then when it when it when FM was FM, you know, when it was under. Yeah, that that's the one I remember playing the whole version. Okay, yeah, they they would they play the whole thing for sure. And they still know? do. And there was an edited version that they came out with that was okay. a single, you know. Right, right, right. Okay, but it sucked, you know. It, yeah, it really yeah, it's up. never cool to do that. <laughs> I was listening to that song this morning, uh, driving one of my boys to drop him off at school, and I had the, that thought about that song. I'm like, I didn't remember this song being this long. 
but then I was like, I'm going to ask if, if there was an edited version because I feel like I, I remember hearing a you know shorter version. Yeah, I mean, you know, the whole thing, the whole thing was, you know, it, it was it was uh, it was the time when Richard Harris put out, you know, MacArthur's Park, you know, and, right. and mm. rock was being melded with uh, with orchestras, you know, and uh, so it was. It, that's what the whole thing was about, you know, making making that movement. And of course, you know, the, everybody was smoking a lot of pot back then, so you know, it was it was great, including <laughs> the, the DJs. Oh, definitely the DJs. DJs and yeah, plus if, DJ. if the song if the song was 10 minutes long they could get up and go to the bathroom or bring the girlfriend in or whatever and they had a 10 minute break so they didn't mind the long sauce and smoke another joint you know so. there was no such thing as dead air i remember reiner schwartz on chum fm in toronto he, he finished something epic like whatever album maybe it was abbey road or something that had just come out and at the very end, there would be this dead air, and you'd be kind of questioning whether your your system was still on. <laughs> and he would eventually kind of come in with, "Oh wow!" <laughs> <laughs> like he was so taken aback for ten minutes, yeah. he couldn't talk. Yeah, <laughs> he didn't have to crossfade anything in there. He just kind of let you let you digest what you just heard. <laughs> it's a, you know, it's a sh- yeah. it's a shame that FM yeah. radio went away. You know, people come in for what was four hours, you know, and they would, they'd take you on a trip with them, you know, for four hours. It'd, it'd go from Frank Zappa, you know, to, to, uh, to Led Zeppelin, you know, I mean, it was it just all over the place, you know, it, it was great. Speaking of Frank Zappa, t- tell us about that. <laughs> oh, well, that was, uh, you know, that came about, we, we, we always enjoyed looking for uh, a producer, you know, I mean, you know, who, who would, who, who can take us to a different place, you know? And so, uh, you know, I, re- I remember I went to uh, 2000 motels to see the movie 2000 motels with Craig, the, the keyboard player in the band. We said, let's go check out the you know, Frank Zappa movie. And we're sitting there watching the movie and Frank, uh, does this, uh, you know, little kind of slap about Grand Funk. He's got this little choo-choo train running around, you know, as a cartoon. And he's, and he's kind of making fun, you know, like Grand Funk Railroad, you know? I mean, it was, you know, he was poking fun at Grand Funk Railroad, you know? So, uh, you know, I turned to Craig and I said, let's get Frank to re- produce this record. <laughs> so, so we called him. You know, we, we, had our, we had our guy call him, you know, and lo and behold, he loved the idea, you know, it was, uh, which just blew us away. You know, sure, you mean Frank wild. Zappa wants to produce our record? You know, yeah. You, you know. So we fly him out to Michigan. Uh, we had this little studio out in Partialville, Michigan. You know, it was just a pole barn, you know, that we, we put up and uh, put all the, the equipment in it, you know, and, and it flew Frank in. And did the record there. It was just, it was, a, it was just an amazing experience. I, I got to be really good friends with him and, uh, and went to stay at his house. And, uh, you know, it was, it was, it was a, 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 just a bizarre relationship. He was not the guy that everybody thought he was, you know, he, he thought, everybody thought he was this really weirdo guy. And he, and he was, he was very kind of a normal <laughs> family man, you know, it really was, you know, and very, and a very smart businessman, yeah. you know, Incredible. Yeah, sure. That's one of those things that seemed like a bad idea, or from the outside would seem but like it a bad worked, idea. Yeah. It turns out to be kind of like idea. Todd Rundgren. <laughs> oh yeah. On on your breakthrough record, we're an American band. Which, by the way, um, I don't think there was any drummer my age that played in a garage band that didn't try to play the intro to uh, we're an American <laughs> band. Which is still, if if it's not the coolest drum intro ever, it's in the top. Oh, I yeah. don't know two to me. Um, so cool, man. It's a, it's a more cowbell moment. Isn't it? <laughs> it is a more cowbell moment, but my favorite song is, uh, with you guys is walk like a man, which is your oh, tune. Yeah, wow. 
yeah. right? You co-wrote it with Mark, and but the drumming, it kind of had elements of prog rock, that song, and this was, Rundgren was producing this. Am yeah. I correct on that? So, but I stole a couple licks from that from you. I'm sorry, uh, but I did. <laughs> um, like at the beginning, you do that fast triplet into the 16th note thing. I don't know that yeah. I'd ever heard that exactly before, and I went, I can pull that off. That took a minute, but I pulled that off. And then there's one later on in the song where you do like a, it's like a four stroke rough into 16th notes, but yeah. it's really slick and it's, it's a hard thing to do and not kind of get behind the beat or lose time. And one thing I got to say about your playing, man, it was just so steady and rock solid. And you're one of those drummers that, you know, you didn't hear the snare drum being a little bit soft and then a little bit loud. It was like, man, you had your sound together. It was just fantastic. Yeah, I'll credit Todd for a lot of that. You know, I mean, we, yeah. we the first the first few albums we did, well, we did them with Terry Knight uh, in uh, in Cleveland uh, at Cleveland Recording, and you know, I got to say that you know the they they weren't really up to the task of of recording a rock band. You know, mm. it, it was very old school. You know, every, you know, record everything with no echo, no EQ, no you know, and so you when you when you were in the studio uh, playing. And hearing that stuff in your headphones, it didn't have anything to it. You know, it was just so dry and so. It wasn't empty. giving anything back to you. Didn't give you anything back. And when yeah. you when we went in with Todd, you know, he throws all that shit out the window and just says, sure. "I'm gonna, uh, you're gonna hear exactly what it's gonna sound like." You know, and so he he would just throw all this EQ on and uh, and echo and effects and and he recorded it that way. You know, it what it, it wouldn't go back, and you'd hear that in your headphones. So. When we went into Miami uh, Criteria Studios to do that record with Todd, it was like uh, I felt uh, free. You know, it was, it was like, you know, I'd been, you know, taken out of this, you know, uh, dull uh, world, you know, and it was like everything's just sounded so amazingly good, especially the drums. I, Todd's drum sound was just, uh, you know, terrific. Fabulous. Yeah, and I mean that makes that makes guys want to play. Believe me, I've been there. I've been there hundreds of times. If you're in a room where you can't get anything back through the headphones, it's like, man, it just doesn't feel right. Yeah, you know, and 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 he was, you know, he was also not one of these guys that was going for uh, take fifty or take fifty six. You know, it was like if you didn't get it in two or three takes, you know, forget about it. You know, it, it was you. So it, it was very, it was very. Uh, yeah, you know, it, it, you know, it was freedom. You know, it was like, and and you were talking about the way I was playing. I was playing to that. That and sure, I felt completely free to play whatever I wanted to. You know, you played beautifully, man. That's all I can say. That's testament to good ears, too. If someone can actually commit those effects, whether it's EQ or or what have you, to tape mm. off yeah. the floor, like you're right. saying. That I mean that that that's testament to his own sense of confidence about what he's hearing, but also that he's going to commit it to tape is almost unheard of. Yeah, he didn't care, you know. And and, and you know if it if it, if he got it burned too high too hard uh, too hot on the tape, you know, and you and you'd get a little uh, bleed through and stuff, he didn't care. You know. Yeah. Was, yeah. It didn't, you know, who's going to hear it, right? Well, and it it helps to have a musician in that seat. Because they know what it's like to be out in the room and it sounds like crap in the headphones, too. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> that definitely worked to you guys' advantage, for sure. Well, there's, there's a little bit of bleed through on one of my favorite bands called The Beatles. I mean, <laughs> come on. Oh, well, how about the whole lot of love at the beginning? Yeah. 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 yeah you know? They kind of did the, did the song around the bleed through, you know? Yeah. yeah. <laughs> 
So I got to ask you about this. Now, I don't know how many people realize this about one of the classic tunes of, that you guys did, Some Kind of Wonderful. Um, vocals killer, by the way. Mark's singing great on it, too. But the restraint in the drum part. Okay, so I, I looked. I actually clocked it. There's not even a crash symbol until two minutes and 16 seconds into the song. <laughs> and then, which I always thought, but I wasn't sure, but I listened to the whole thing. Not one drum fill. Not one. I don't know that I've ever heard a song where a dude said, you know what? I'm going to give economy a whole new name here. <laughs> not one fill, dude. Wow. Restraint of the highest order. But it's so perfect. I bet nobody that's not a drummer and maybe most of, us and i didn't even think about it for a long time but it's like you know playing it in cover bands i'd go well i of course i know that beat i want to listen in man not one drum fill tell me about that you know we were going after what well, you know the soul Brothers six were the original band that did that you know and and we grew up in flint michigan listened to wamm was the local uh you know r&b station you know and they and they were playing to you know the, the soul Brothers six version of that you know and we picked it up there and we were trying to kind of mimic what was you know what they they did you know which was okay. nothing going on at the beginning of that song until until the hammond b3 comes in uh, you know at the end you know that that there, there was it was just bass and drums and vocals and that we're doing that you know we were just kind of doing the thing you know and and the other thing about uh, me playing that song is yeah i'm not a left hand shuffle guy you know i i always played a shuffle with my foot you know so it's like you know on you know on the on the foot you know and then the back beat and the, and the hi hat you know so that's what that song is you know is yep. is it's me playing that shuffle you know with mel playing you know do 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 right and it, it is as sim as simple as it gets you know and the whole idea is to keep it that way until you know until the b3 comes in yeah but you even kept it that way then it was like i think i would have just been said no nah, i gotta go kakaboom sure so i gotta just put one <laughs> in there just yeah. one but then you didn't <laughs> i'm proud of you for not doing that no it's just it's such so cool such good stuff can you tell us about when you first uh first got into playing drums and got into music on the way up to the grand funk well, you know, I, I started my first band when I was uh, still in elementary school, you know, and uh, wow. it's called the Red, the Red Devils. Uh, and there was a talent contest that they would do in the in the gym at lunch hour, you know. And so we put together this band. And at, the, at that time, I was playing guitar and the drummer we had, all he had was a, a cymbal and a snare drum. It wasn't a whole kit. It was just a cymbal and a snare drum. And, uh, and, and we had a trumpet player. So it was a guitar, trumpet, and a, and, and a, and a drummer with basically a snare drum. And we learned, uh, we learned the song Peter Gunn, you know. And, that, and, and that's, what we, you know, that's what we played at the talent show, you know. And, that, and, and really, uh, you know, I, this, talent, this talent show that used to go on in the gym, I remember, you know, being a kid, you know, you know and, and seeing these guys, uh, these older guys, you know, play high school guys playing at uh, at the lunch hour you know in the gym and they were getting all of these girls you know it was like uh -huh. oh you know and, and it was like um you know ding ding i gotta have a band you know i gotta yeah. put together so i put together a band in, in the basement you know that was that was it right there and you know, it was um that's that's really what got got me started into the thing and then after that i put together the jazz masters in the basement you know in swartz creek you know we put together this band the jazz masters 
and started playing. And then uh, a little later on, the Jazz Masters became the pack and then Terry Knight in the pack, you know, because we got Terry Knight. To, uh, he was a local DJ. And uh, and so we met him, uh, you know, playing, playing around all the little sock hops and that kind of stuff. And then that band, you know, eventually evolved into Grand Funk Railroad. You know, uh, Terry, Terry had left and he went off to New York and became uh, an A&R guy for Capital. And, uh, and Mark and I decided to put together a, a trio uh, because, you know, Hendrix and, and uh, Blue Cheer and, uh, you know, all these bands, Cream, and all these three pieces bands were happening. And so we enlisted uh, Mel uh, from Question Mark and the Mysterians. Mel, Mel was the bass player in Question Mark. Uh, and we knew him, you know, from, you know, from high school and that kind of stuff. And so we enlisted him to, uh, to come in and we, we started our own trio. You know, that, that was it. That's awesome. So we're going to shift gears a little bit here, Don, and talk about uh, album artwork and cover artwork and stuff. You know, I, I look at your history as, as, as a band and you're very personnel driven. It's all about, you know, the band on the cover. And, you know, it's kind of like, here we are, listen to the music. Um, there's a few moments, though, of brilliance. I, I thought the American band Uncle Sam, the pointing "We want you" hand was was sort of the unwitting Andy Warhol tongue. It became your brand for a long time, I think, um, and that was clever. You know, the Phoenix Fire was conceptual, and we were talking about the Cavemen on Survival. But beyond that, I don't attribute Grand Funk Railroad as being kind of heavily into concept. Having said that, I'm always curious to know if you, the musician, are, are big fans of album artwork and if you could tell us a bit about your favorite covers and, and, and how much say you had in the, in, the, in the marketing and the look and feel of your albums as a band. Yeah, we, you know, we, we didn't really you know, contribute that much. I mean, the ideas were put to us, you know, really either from Capital or we had a publicist at the time you know, uh, that, that, was, that came up. Actually, she was the one that suggested the, uh, the pointing finger, the Uncle Sam's pointing finger thing. You know, there, were, there was a competition uh, at that time for, uh, you know, between all the bands. Who could come up with, you know, the, the, the coolest concept, you know? Uh, and, uh, you know, Terry Knight came up with uh, the concept of the, the flipped coin, you know, for E Pluribus Funk, you know, it was, it was the, the make it look like a coin, put Shea Stadium on the back, you know, on the three pit, the three of us on the front, you know, it was, uh, it was a competition really, because, you know, what, what a great piece of art, uh, that was, you know, uh, that album cover, it was just like, wow, what can we do with this? You know, when they went to CDs, it really lost it, you know, you, you, you know, <laughs> really, you had to, you know, compile everything down to the size of a CD. Don't get me started on that. Yeah. <laughs> size does matter when it comes to it having does. a nice canvas <laughs> to work with. Yeah. So, I mean, not that it's re relative to this conversation, but having observed your favorite cover, which is, you know, E Pluribus, what, what's your what's your favorite album covers? So, you know, if you if you could have had any album cover for your projects, what have you enjoyed seeing from other bands? Well, I, I loved, you know, one of, one of my favorite album covers was the Sgt. Pepper uh, from the Beatles. You know, I, you know, I, I love that album cover, you know, and, uh, and I, and I love, and I love that album. I thought, you know, the, the Beatles, you know, you know, came, uh, came to a, a whole new place at that, you know, basically they started moving when they did Revolver. Uh, you know, but, yeah. and, and that, and that, it was like, you know, moving away from being the pop band to being, you know, uh, you know, something else, you know, and then when they got to Sergeant Pepper, it was like, Oh my God, 
what, what's going on here? You know, so uh, yeah, that, that was one of my favorite album covers for sure. Me too, for sure. Dane and I get talking about the Beatles and it's like a big black hole. You just, you just can't say enough about that band. Yeah, you know, it, 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 just think <laughs> if they would have stayed together. <laughs> wow. Interesting. And I, n- I never even thought about the long, you know, life after the Beatles. But it, yeah, had they mm-hmm. been a band all the way through the 70s and 80s, it would have been intriguing to see where they took it. Yeah. yeah. There's something to be said about leave them, leave them wanting more, you know, I mean, it's that, you know, it was un- unwitting that they would do that, you know, and, and of course losing members due to illness and, and crime was another whole <laughs> chapter. Uh, yeah. But yeah, no, it's always intriguing, but I, you know, as a band, you guys were definitely more about the music than kind of populating your whole discography with, um, with tons of conceptual work, you know, though I do think survival's <laughs> pretty pretty interesting yeah we did you know we we kind of went off in that direction and and the songs were you know heading in that direction you know with the theme you know we would go in i mean we used to record those albums in in a matter of a a week you know i mean it wasn't wasn't like a year-long process or two years you know now now you know when we got into the 80s you know you started hearing about bands spending years uh, you know, we, I mean, we used we used to do these things in a week, in in a matter of weeks. You know, we would uh, we rehearse for a week and go into the studio for uh, three days, and uh, that, that was a, that was a new album. <laughs> so. It didn't take seven days to get your drum sound. I I've been with bands myself where you just have to go and play, you know, pinball or play pool because the drum sounds took five days, you know, go get a fat, go get a deeper snare, you know. Uh, it was- <laughs> That's kind of, you know, my, my mother always used to say, don't spend a lot of time examining the fuzz in your navel. You know, that, <laughs> that's kind of what it is. That's it. <laughs> yeah. So Don, moving along to the live experience a little bit, um, and I guess dial it back a little bit, but can you tell us about some of your first attended concerts uh, as a fan? Oh, I, I'll never forget. You know, one of my first real uh, concerts was uh, James Brown, <laughs> and, uh, and and I took I took this girl uh, that, that I just I, I, we just started dating, and uh, and I took I took I took her with me to the Flint IMA, which is a, our local. You know, it was basically the size of a gymnasium. You know, uh, to to see James Brown because I was I was a huge James Brown fan. Sure. You know, I just, Totally, you know, for, for for me growing up in Flint, you know, R and B was it, right. you know, and uh, and we went to, and we were, you know, literally the only white people in the place, you know, and uh, and I remember that her parents were extremely, you know, scared of uh, of letting her go to the sure. concert, you know, but but we went, and I'll never forget, you know, the the, the two drummers, you know, and James James Brown doing, you know, the cape, you know, the his guy his. Uh, I don't know what you what you would call him, you know, his man. Uh, we came out, put the cape over his shoulders, you know, and lead him off stage, and he throw the cape back, you know, and go head back to the microphone, you know. It, it was just such a show, you know. It was just God, I loved that. That was uh, it was it was it was certainly a, a lasting impression, okay. you know. And then I, I do remember seeing again, uh, you know, I saw Jimi Hendrix uh, at that same place at the Flint IMA. Uh, uh, and it was just like on, you know, just blew me away. And, and this was really before, 
sound systems were any good, you know, and light and light systems were any good, you know. I mean, we went through that too in early Grand Funk. You know, we you you just you just made it loud. You did. It wasn't a matter of quality. You just had to had to fill the place, you know, because you know. So you just turn everything up, you know, as loud as it would get, you know, and. Uh, and that's really kind of what the Hendrix thing was, you know, and there was no lighting system. It was just a, you know, a couple of super troopers, uh, spotlights and, you know, on the guys and that was it. Uh, and, uh, right. yeah, it, it, I loved seeing stuff back then. It was, it was so raw and so, uh, and so, so real. Uh, it was just, uh, wow. Terrific. Even now it's, it's great to occasionally go into a, a venue like Massey Hall or the Greek Theater in L.A. or something and see a band, you know, I, I saw Procol Harum and they had a couple of white lights on the guys and that was it. It was just so, it felt very 60s again because they weren't into lighting per se. It was just a fant- fantastic sounding show and a great performance, but it was lovely to see that disregard for um, all the all the the peripheral shit. You know, I, I, I miss those days, you know, and, uh, you know, a lot of people, you know, tell me about, you know, songwriting, you know, and, and, and producing records, you know, and stuff, and, and they get into all of the particulars, you know, and, and to me, you know, the, the best the best records were the ones where you could hear all the mistakes and you could tell that they they uh, they they weren't they weren't isolated. The musicians weren't really isolated from the singer, you know, or anything. It was just they were just in a, rec- in a recording studio with, a, you know, a couple of microphones uh, and playing live, right. you know, and, and the, the recording, it wasn't about how good the recording was. It was about how good the performance and the song and, and all of that stuff was, you know, and, and that's really, you know, what, what it comes down to, isn't it? You know, it's, it, if the song isn't any good and, and, and the performance isn't any good, it doesn't, it doesn't matter how good the recording is. <laughs> yeah, exactly. Yeah. But it was very, very lucky. It was very lucky that the Beatles, who did have all that crosstalk and all that kind of imperfection, it was very lucky that, that they also had this guy called George Martin oh, at the helm. They could capture it. Yeah, that didn't hurt. Well, speaking of the Beatles, um, I have to ask this, Don, because, you know, one of the things that's always stuck out to me is the story about the Shea Stadium sellout in 1971, uh, when you guys sold 55,000 tickets in 72 hours and and was faster than the Beatles uh, sellout from when they played there in 65. Can you take us back to your your brain, if you will, in 1971 uh, with that experience and what it was like to play that show? Uh, Just the whole thing was uh, pinch me. Pinch me. Is this real? You know, I mean, here we are, you know, three, three guys from Flint, Michigan, you know, and, uh, and we're in New York city. And uh, I think at the time they, uh, this is when they they used the billboard down in, um, in times square uh, they used the whole Capitol records, bought the whole thing, the whole block long billboard for our closer to home album and put all three of our faces up on this, you know, and it was the first time that that, that uh, billboard, the whole thing had been used for a music, you know, thing. So here, you know, we, we come into New York and, and we're standing in Times Square looking up at our three faces and, you know, it was like, it, it was just surreal. The whole thing was just surreal, you know, and, uh, we were being uh, ushered around New York and uh, with a with a motorcade, you know, with police, you know, uh, escorting us around. You know, just an amazing, uh, an amazing feeling, you know. And to fly in to Shea Stadium, a sold out Shea Stadium 
with uh, humble pie is on stage and we're flying in on helicopters and we're looking down at this, you know, and we're going to go on stage, in, you know, at this thing. And, you know, I mean, really, it was pinch me. Is this really happening? Uh, and, and wasn't it raining? Uh, that wasn't raining there. No, that, that rained in Tokyo. We played a stadium in Tokyo where it was in the middle of a typhoon. <laughs> <laughs> and we and we went and we went on, you know, and we played, you know, in the middle you of the played. Yeah. <laughs> Man, you guys will play through anything. No wow. kidding. That's a, that's a marketing line right there. That was a legendary concert in Japan. I mean, that really kind of made us, you know, somebody yeah. in Japan that that we actually went out and played in you know, during that typhoon. You know, it was wow. an amazing thing. Yeah. Wow. So we always like to ask, you know, and you obviously shared some of these stories already, and some of them are obvious, I think, but, you know, can you, can you share with us any tidbit stories, like when you've been on stage or, or recording studio situation where you're like, how did I get here? I can't believe I'm playing with this person, that person. What are those kind of things that would come to mind when you look back in your career and think, wow, you know, I can't believe I did that. Well, you know, I mean, I, I can't believe that the Shea Stadium thing happened. That's for sure. I mean, another one was, uh, sure. we, we played Hyde Park. Uh, in London, it was probably one of the f- the f- first times that we we went to London, and Grand Funk had just broken, you know, and, and so there was a big, you know, a big deal about it here. Who's this new American band, you know, uh, uh, coming over here? And uh, and they, and it was a free concert in, in Hyde Park. It was just it was just a sea of people, you know. And again, Humble Pie was our our opening act on that. You know, we did a, a small European tour with Humble Pie. Um, and, uh, it was basically because, uh, we were both handled by premier talent, uh, and, uh, they, they put us together, you know, so that they could make commissions from both bands, you know, that, that was, that's what that was about. Mm. And, you know, and they were, they were like a, a new upcoming, you know, band, you know, they, they had been playing, yeah. uh, you know, it, um, uh, oh God, the Fillmore, you know, and, you know, and we were playing the Fillmore and the, ca- the Capitol theater and in New Jersey, you know, and those kind of places, you know, and so, uh, yeah, they and they were an upcoming you know band for sure. Yeah, yeah, that's awesome. You know, I gotta say, I saw Grand Funk Railroad a few years ago over in Dayton. You guys played a show over there, and um, you know, I figured the show would be good. But you guys blew me away. All five of those guys in the band currently, and I know have been for what a couple decades now. <laughs> um, man, I, I, I mean, the sound was so solid and so good, and Max Carl's voice was great. Your voice was great. Everybody just really, I mean, look, I've seen a lot of shows and um, I see a lot of people that put on good shows and I also see a, a lot of bad shows and a lot of going through the motions. And man, there was just none of that with you guys. The entire show was just, was just great. Oh, God, really you're, made, you're making me really miss playing, you know, because I, I, you know, I've been, you know, sitting at home now for uh, however many months, you know, and I, I really do miss being on the road with those guys and, and be, and playing shows, you know, I mean, we, uh, you know, we've been doing this, you, you brought up, you know, it's been a couple of decades, you know, 20 years, uh, that we've been touring with this band and, uh, and God, I, you know, I, I sorely miss, uh, being out there on stage in front of the people and, and yeah, it, it's, it, I think it's a great band. It's a great show. Uh, it's great music. Um, and, uh, you know, and, and I love the presentation, you know, and, and yeah, I, I, I really miss it. <laughs> Sure. Well, I can see why you do. I mean, you guys are so good. Why wouldn't you miss it? I get it. Thank you so much for joining us, Don. We appreciate it. Well, thank you very much. I enjoyed it. I had a good time. Yeah. Yeah. Thank you. Take it easy. Take care. Thanks. Thanks, Don. Bye. 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 Take care. 
A big thank you to Don Brewer from Grand Funk Railroad for joining us today on the Music Buzz podcast. We're going to close this one off with a live version of We're an American Band. Thanks, Don, for uh, joining us, and we'll catch you next time. 